and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rees, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this episode, we are going to get festive with some Christmas ghost stories, because that's the best thing about Christmas. Never mind the presents and the parties, it's all about the ghost stories. But unlike Charles Dickens and M.R. James, the ghost stories on this episode are not works of fiction. They are real ghost stories, or at least they were claimed to be real. They were reported as fact in the press, and I think that makes them even scarier. But I will let you, dear listener, be the judge of that. And after listening to these eerie, yuletide tales, maybe you'll think it's all a load of humbug, or maybe you'll think it was the work of some particularly nasty Christmas spirits. And so, to begin at the beginning. And in the year 1847, Catherine Crow introduced a new word to the English-speaking world that still sends a shiver down the spine today, and that word is poltergeist. Poltergeist, a combination of two German words, polten and geist, which roughly translates as noisy spirit. And while I'm sure most people listening to this podcast are fully aware of the word poltergeist, especially if you watch horror films, nevertheless, the introduction of this word at this point is quite important for this episode. Because the activity that we now associate with poltergeists had, up until this point, been blamed on devils and demons and evil spirits and goblins and all manner of creatures. But now there was a single word for these invisible entities that were characterised by the terrible noises and the absolute destruction they left in their wake. Basically, poltergeists are the ghosts that give ghosts a bad name. They don't help you find lost treasure or pass on some invaluable, long-lost family secret. Poltergeists are all about being a nuisance. And the reason I'm telling you about this is because our first ghost story is going to involve a poltergeist in Cardiff, in the capital city of Wales. And there were other cases going on in and around the city, although it was a town for some of these tales, these Victorian Edwardian tales. But they concern poltergeists in and around the Cardiff area at that time, such as one case in Riverside Street in Taft's Well, where there were two neighbouring houses and one occupant on one side was being disturbed by strange noises that they said sounded like the knocking of knuckles. The knocking of knuckles. And I will try to recreate that sound for you now because it's been quite a while since I've done any sound effects on this podcast, but it's Christmas. Let's have a sound effect. And they heard a sound that went something like this. Just like that, as, as, as Tommy Cooper would say, as, as another Welshman might have said. But they could hear this sound like the knocking of knuckles on the wall. They assumed it was their neighbour. But when it became a regular occurrence, they decided they had to pop next door and have a word with them, only to discover that their neighbour 
was thinking exactly the same thing. They could hear the same noises and they were thinking about speaking to their neighbour about it. They were equally unhappy and both sides discovered that it wasn't the other side doing it. The story reached the press, which is how I came across it while I was researching one of my Ghosts of Wales books a few years ago. And that wasn't supposed to be a shameless plug for my book there, but it did accidentally become one. So as we're talking about it, Ghosts of Wales does make a great Christmas present. But anyway, back to this episode. And this made it to the press. And to begin with, the press tried to dismiss it with some natural explanation. And they said because the house was right next to the River Taff, to the Avon Taff that flowed nearby, it must be river rats causing it. But when that was ruled out, no rational explanation could be found. Both houses, we are told, were left in a state of alarm and the case remained a mystery. So this is an example of the kind of poltergeist case that was going on in and around Cardiff in the 19th century. Now, this was not an isolated incident. There were several places across Cardiff, across Wales, across Britain, across the world, reporting such activity. And while that's an example of a ghost making a noise, poltergeist could do a little bit more than just make noises. And in another case, from roughly the same time, a house in Lisbon became the target of nightly unexplainable events that went far beyond knocking on walls. Because according to the reports, this poltergeist could pull people from their beds much worse than a knocking on the wall it could pull people from their beds. Now, this property, we are told, was midway, or maybe it's still there, but it was midway between the parish church and the Welsh Baptist chapel, and it was home to a widow. She had three or four children and an elderly lodger, and they would regularly hear chairs being drawn about by themselves. Crockery would be smashed into countless pieces all over the place, and they lived in constant fear of being touched by unseen hands in the dark. And in one particular encounter, the lodger was lying in bed one night when he felt his bedclothes being pulled from him. He hurriedly struck a light and although he couldn't see anyone in his room, he was convinced that he was not alone. He could feel a presence. So he conducted a thorough search and when he was finally satisfied, there was nobody there. There was no one under his bed. There was no one hiding in the wardrobe. He went back to bed and once again, the bedclothes were yanked away from him and he could see nothing. He could hear nothing. But at the end of these reports, all we know is that the people living in that house were seeking expert help. I don't know what kind of ghostbusters there were at the time to call upon, but they were looking for help. They were looking for somebody to try and put a stop to this. And what happened to that poltergeist is again unknown. And this is a slightly frustrating characteristic of these stories. It's a very common characteristic. Because they are real stories, we just don't know what happened next, if anything. They are left open-ended. So, that's an example of the kinds of poltergeist reports being published in the 19th century, which brings us up to the start of the 20th century, and which brings us to 
Christmas, the whole point of this episode to Christmas. And it also brings us to Canton, to a house in 20th century Canton in Cardiff, where a family were living and they were, to quote, badly scared one Christmas by, I kid you not, they were scared one Christmas by the noise of heavy boots stomping around their home just after midnight on Christmas. And I think if that was published today, we might just have a good laugh at it. But back then, no, they were badly scared and they could hear the noise of heavy boots stomping around their home just after midnight on Christmas. And sadly, this festive visitor was not a jolly old man delivering presents. He was, as we're about to find out, somebody or something far more sinister. Now, this family had lived happily enough with no ghosts, what well, not they knew of, in a house on King's Road for six years when the sounds suddenly began downstairs. They heard them when they were upstairs and they were loud enough to wake them when they were asleep. And these uncanny footsteps, as they described them, really were stamping. They were loud enough to wake people sleeping in another part of the house. And they didn't stop at Christmas. They kept going for, presumably, for all 12 days of Christmas. And they would always follow the same route. They could hear these footsteps starting in the front room. Then they would go out into the passage and then onto the stairs that led up to the bedrooms. Now, the husband was a hard-nosed sceptic and he was determined to find a natural cause and he failed again and again and the only thing he achieved in doing was making his wife and children even more scared because he was saying don't worry don't worry it's just this and then it proved not to be that and he had to come up with some other more unlikely excuse time after time and he would try to catch this Santa spirit in the act by standing ready at the bedroom door. And as soon as he heard those footsteps outside, he would pull it open. But as he did so, the sounds stopped. He would then conduct a thorough search of every room because he knew they were in the house. He heard them. And then he would go outside, search the exterior as well. No stone was left unturned and there was definitely nobody there but as soon as he returned to bed, the sounds would also return, but with added ferocity. The stomping, stamping boots would come back like never before. He would then repeat the whole process. He'd jump out of bed. He'd repeat the search, find nobody. And once again, as a result, the only thing he achieved was scaring the household even more this time because the stomping was getting louder and louder. So what was causing it? Well, the reports do stress that all non-supernatural sources were checked. Things like the gas meter, which I, I don't know much about Edwardian gas meters, but by all accounts, they could make loud noises. And it definitely wasn't the gas meter or anything like it that was all ruled out. And the idea that it might be a thief was ruled out quite quickly as well. The idea that it was somebody taking gifts instead of bringing gifts at that time of year. Because, of course, if you're a burglar, you want to do the total opposite. You want to be quiet 
and you want to steal things and run away. You don't want to be incredibly noisy, steal nothing, and then keep coming back again and again and again. Now, as with the other poltergeist cases on this episode, this one does not have some big reveal. It isn't wrapped up nicely like a Christmas present with a bow on the top at the end. We don't know what happened, if anything happened. But as a creepy little finale to this tale, the man of the house, the man at the heart of all of this activity, did make one observation that scared him more than anything else. And he said that whoever or whatever was causing this, because he was a sceptical person, but whoever or whatever was causing this must have been aware of his movements. Because whenever he went in search of it, whenever he tried to catch it, the activity would stop instantly. But if he went back to bed, it started again even louder, which meant that he was being watched. And that, for him, was the scariest part of that entire affair. Which brings us to our final ghost story, arguably our scariest ghost story, another Christmas time haunting from Cardiff, from just down the road from where that one took place. But in this case, the ghost isn't just heard. It doesn't just stomp around the place. In this case, the ghost is seen as well elevates it above a plain old poltergeist terrorising the inmates of a house. And it was in Roth in Cardiff one winter that a journalist caught wind of a local haunting and decided to pop along and write a quick story about it. Because back then, a bit like today, ghost stories made good headlines, even if the people writing them didn't really believe in the ghosts. You could have something like, local man scared by spook, which would sound great. And the journalist himself admits, before he arrives at the scene, he was a sceptical man. However, at the end of writing this case, he admits to being baffled and mystified. And the events that follow are what baffled and mystified him. Now, this was around Christmas time, but a few months earlier, in the autumn, the family had first rented a house on Montgomery Street. It was a newly built house at the time, and they chose it because it was close to Roth Recreation Ground. And in particular, they needed a house next to a stable. For whatever reason, horses were important to them. They needed a house next to a stable, and this house by Roth Recreation Ground on Montgomery Street was perfect, or so they thought. Now, the man of the house, as with our last story, was once again a sceptic. He had no time for haunted houses or any of that spooky stuff. And yet again, he appeared to be the main target of the spirit. It's almost like they are picking on the people who don't believe in them. Maybe there's a lesson there for us. But this man who didn't believe in them moved into this house, what he thought was an ideal house with a stable, with his wife, his two daughters and his two sons. And it was the two sons who first claimed there was something strange going on. Specifically, they could hear rapping. And that's rapping with an R. R-A-P-P-I-N-G. 
not wrapping as in Christmas present wrapping, which of course would be appropriate for this episode, or, or musical wrapping even. I don't think there was rap music in Wales at this point in time, but they could hear rapping like knocking, and it seemed to be coming from the clothes box in their room. Now, the father wasn't having any of it. He told them it was their imagination, and even after hearing it himself, he still didn't think it was worth worrying about, and certainly not supernatural, until the noises started bothering him when he heard rapping on his bedroom door, which, now that I've said that aloud, sounds like a line from an Edgar Allan Poe poem. But he heard this sound rapping on his bedroom door. Again, he still didn't think much of it. He assumed it was one of the children messing around. And again, we've got parallels here with the last story. And he thinks, right, I'll catch them out. I'll wait by the door. And when I hear this rapping noise at my door, I'll open the door quickly and catch them. But as he does so, the rapping stops as soon as he opens the door and there is nobody there. So, so far, this sounds like deja vu, really. It's another ghost in Cardiff disturbing people and disappearing. But things get a bit weird as the activity escalates. And the next people to really get spooked by it were the daughters. Now, the daughters also shared a room together, and they were the first ones to see something. And one morning at around 2am, they were awoken by sounds, which was getting a common thing in the house by this point. But after being awoken, they saw a shadow-like form moving across the wall. After this, the activity escalated for weeks and weeks. Doors would open and close on their own. People would have their clothing tugged. And things really got serious just before Christmas, when the man was about to head out for the evening and realised he'd left something upstairs. Now, this was back in the days before they had electric lights, and he would usually use a candle if he needed to walk around, but he was used to walking around in the dark, and he was only popping upstairs to pick something up, so he decided to dash upstairs in the darkness, and as he was going up the stairs, something happened that froze his blood, because he could feel that he wasn't alone. He could feel something coming towards him in the darkness. And suddenly, to quote, this thing passed through him. Something on the stairs not only walked towards him, it walked straight through him. And at this point, maybe this skeptic wasn't quite so skeptical after all as he stood there on the stairs in the darkness, frozen in fear. Now, we don't know if the man ever admitted to thinking that maybe, maybe this isn't all natural causes, but we do know that he was scared enough to move house. And by the time he was talking to the journalist, they had settled in their new property, but they'd only gone across the road. They were still in Montgomery Street, and the reason they were still nearby is because they needed that stable. That stable was really important to them. So even though they were too scared to stay in this what seemed to be a haunted house, they'd only gone across the road when they had the chance to move. And that stable would not only be the reason they were there. You could say it was the stable's fault they were there, but the stable would play a central part in arguably the most terrifying part of this entire tale. And it was also said to be 
haunted itself because the man, while he was there, had also heard these strange sounds coming from the roof of the stable. While he was inside working, he would hear these sounds, and as with the house, he'd go outside to check, and he could clearly see there was nobody there. And in this case, there was nowhere for them to hide. It was a roof. He could see it with his own eyes. There it was. There was nobody on it. But nevertheless, I can hear those noises inside. But back to the story and back to Christmas, because this is the Christmas episode. And I'm assuming they had a good Christmas time. He certainly had a good Boxing Day, because on Boxing Day, the man was sitting there in the living room in front of the fire with his wife, fast asleep, like most of us, I imagine, on Boxing Day. After eating way too much, he's fallen asleep in front of the television and was having, well, well not, not the television, because televisions hadn't been invented. He wasn't, he wasn't watching Doctor Who or the Two Ronnies, but I'm sure he would have liked to have been. But he had certainly fallen asleep in his living room with his wife in front of the fire. Now, he would, as a rule, every night between 11pm and midnight, go out and stable up the horses. If for some reason he couldn't do it, other members of the family could help out. But really, he liked to do it himself. Nothing to do with the haunting, I don't think. It's just the horses and the stable were very important to him. Now, on Boxing Day, when his son came in, and his, his eldest son, who was 24 years old, it wasn't, it wasn't a little kid, but his son came in and saw his father sleeping there on Boxing Day after a long day of, of merriment but no television. He thought, I'll do a good deed and I'll go out and I'll see to the horses for him. Now, it turns out the man wasn't actually sleeping. He was just lying there, resting his eyes. And when he noticed the sun was going out, he thought, well, it's very kind of him, but I'll pop out after him and make sure he does it properly. So, the sun heads out to the stable to see to the horses, and the man slowly raises up from that chair, heads out into the cold winter night after him. And this time, it's not the man who is frozen in fright. But he finds his son, who walked out a minute before him, frozen to the spot, standing there, motionless in the stable. On the floor surrounding him were discarded matches, because he'd tried to strike a match to put a light on, and as he did so, he saw a face in the darkness. He saw a face, and then he saw a body. That face and that body belonged to a woman dressed in white, who then glided towards the house. And as she reached the door to the shed at the back of the house, she did not stop, but kept going and vanished straight through the wall. Like his father, the boy beforehand had been an unbeliever. Nevertheless, he knew what he'd seen, and he'd seen the white lady, which might well be the same spirit that was making all the noises in the house and freezing people as they walked up the stairs. Now, as mentioned, soon after these 
Christmas frights. They did move out. They didn't move very far, but they did move out. They spoke to the journalist. The story was printed in the press. And while I mentioned with all of the other stories on this episode that there's no satisfactory ending to them, there's no neat finale, well, there is something of an epilogue with this one. Because when the story was printed, other people who'd lived at this house got in touch to talk about their own experiences. And some people did corroborate what this family claimed had happened. They had also been scared by, to quote, strange tappings, and as a result, they had left for similar reasons. So this family, so it would seem, were not the first family to be scared out of this house. In the interest of balance, somebody else did then get in touch and say, actually, I lived there and I had no problems at all. But the final word in this story, I think, should go to the property's landlord, who, unsurprisingly, you might think, dismissed all of these reports because obviously he didn't want to be stuck with a house that had a reputation for being haunted, which meant he couldn't rent it, or if he did, he'd have to rent it out on the cheap. So he wanted to draw a line underneath the entire affair. He said some rather uncomplimentary things about the people who'd reported this story in the first place, but he summed up the entire thing with one word. One single word. And I promise you this is 100% genuine. This was printed in the newspapers back in the 1800s, but it couldn't have been a better ending to this Christmas episode. And I don't think he could have had any idea back then how this one common word in his day, well over a century ago, would, by our time, by today, become so synonymous with Christmas. And also, he could have had no idea that some podcaster from Port Talbot would be quoting that one word to thousands of people around the world. But when he was asked about the haunting in that house in Cardiff, the landlord simply said the entire affair was humbug. It was all a load of humbug. But what do you think? Was it humbug? Or was there really something strange haunting the streets of Cardiff at Christmas all those years ago? And if so, does it still haunt the streets of Cardiff today? And will it do so again this year? Well, if indeed anything is reported, I'll be sure to bring you all the news on next year's Christmas special. And on that festive note, we've reached the end of another episode of the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. And if you've enjoyed this Christmassy episode and you don't want to miss any of the other episodes, all the other non-Christmassy episodes coming up in the new year, please consider hitting the subscribe button if you haven't already. And if you really enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast going forward, it is the season of goodwill. After all, it is the season of giving. But you can treat me to a coffee via my website, which is always very much appreciated. Or if you'd like to support the podcast for free, which I know is always the best way, please consider leaving a quick review, giving it a quick thumbs up, a quick five stars, or whatever the options are for being nice on whatever platform you are consuming this on. If you'd like more 
Ghosts and Folklore. You can follow me on social media. I'm on all the main social media platforms. And as I shamelessly mentioned earlier in the episode, as well as a podcast, I've also written a number of books on similar weird and wonderful subjects, and they do make lovely Christmas presents. And one of the books, Ghosts of Wales Accounts from the Victorian Archives, is a collection of long-lost ghost stories that went unpublished since they first appeared back in back in Victorian times, hence the name, and they include some of the tales on this episode in much more detail. So, if you'd like to know more about some of the stories we touched upon in this episode, you can find them in Ghosts of Wales accounts from the Victorian archives. And this is something of an exclusive. It's a Christmas bonus, a Christmas present to you all. But I've got a new book of Welsh ghost stories coming out in time for Halloween 2023. And let's just say that some of the accounts on this episode that are not in Ghosts of Wales accounts from the Victorian archives might well be popping up in the next book but I'm sure I'll be talking a lot more about that around Halloween time next year. But anyway, never mind Halloween for now. It's Christmas. It's Christmas. You shouldn't be sitting around listening to me talking rubbish. We should all be getting merry and spending quality time with our nearest and dearest. And so on that note, it just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening. Dioch and Varian Amrando. I've been Mark Reese. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast, beaming to you from Wales to the world. I hope you have an absolutely amazing Christmas. Nadolig Llawen Yawn. And I hope the Mary Lloyd brings you nothing but good luck for the new year, providing you give her plenty of cake and ale beforehand. And God bless us, everyone. Nostar. Thank you.